Chapter Eight of the Vikings by Alan Mauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Chapter Eight: Viking Civilization. The activities of the Vikings were all-embracing, and before any attempt can be made to estimate their influence in the various countries which came permanently under their rule, or were brought more or less closely into touch with them. Some account, however slight, must be given of Scandinavian civilization at this time, both on its spiritual and on its material sides. For the former aspect we must turn chiefly to the poems and sagas of Old Norse literature, for the latter to the results of modern archaeological research. So far as the poems and sagas are concerned, it is well to remember that they were to a large extent composed in Iceland, and reflect the somewhat peculiar type of civilization developed there at a period just subsequent to the Viking Age itself. This civilization differs necessarily from that developed in Scandinavia, or in the other Scandinavian settlements, in that it was free from Western influence. But this is to some extent compensated for by the fact that we get in Iceland a better picture of the inherent possibilities of Viking civilization when developed on independent lines. At the beginning of the Viking Age, the Scandinavian peoples were in a transitional stage of development. On the one hand, there was still much, both in their theory and in their practice of life, that savoured of primitive barbarism, while on the other, in the development of certain phases of human activity, more especially in those of war, trade, and social organization, they were considerably ahead of many of their European neighbours. More than one writer has commented upon the strange blending of barbarism and culture which constitutes Viking civilization. It is evident when we study their daily life, and it is emphasized in the story of their slow and halting passage from heathenism to Christianity. We need not travel far to find examples of their barbarism. Their cruelty and warfare is a commonplace among the historians of the period. When the Irish found the Danes cooking their food on spits stuck in the bodies of their fallen foes, and asked why they did anything so hateful, the answer came, Why not? If the other side had been victorious, they would have done the same with us. The custom of cutting the blood eagle bracket, i.e., cutting the ribs in the shape of an eagle and pulling the lungs through the opening, end of bracket, was a well-known form of vengeance taken on the slayer of one's father if captured in battle, and is illustrated in the story of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok himself. Another survival of primitive life was the famous berserk fury, when men in the heat of battle were seized with sudden madness and, according to the popular belief, received a double portion of strength, and lost all sense of bodily pain, a custom for which Dr. Boog finds an apt parallel in the running amok of the races of the Malay Peninsula. Children were tossed on the point of the spear, and the Viking leader who discouraged the custom was nicknamed Barnacarl, i.e. children's friend. In contrast to these methods of warfare, stands their skill in fortification, 
in which they taught many lessons both to their English and to their Frankish adversaries, their readiness in adapting themselves to new conditions of warfare, and their clever strategy whereby they again and again outwitted their opponents. The same contrast meets us when we consider the position of woman among them. The chroniclers make many references to their lust after woman. We hear in an English chronicler how they combed their hair, indulged in Sabbath baths, often changed their clothes, and in various ways cultivated bodily beauty in order that they might the more readily overcome the chastity of the matrons and make concubines even of the daughters of the nobility. Wandering from country to country, they often had wives in each, and polygamy would seem to have been the rule, at least among the leaders. In Ireland we hear of what seemed to have been veritable harems, while in Russia we are told of the great-grandson of Rurik, the founder of the Russian kingdom, that he had more than 800 concubines, though we may perhaps suspect the influence of oriental custom in this case. Yet, side by side with all this, the legitimate wife was esteemed and honoured, and attained a position and took a part in national life, which was quite unusual in those days. In the account of an Arabic embassy to the Vikings of the West, we have a vivid picture of the freedom of their married life. Auther, the widow of Olaf the White, after the fall of her son Thorstein, took charge of the fortunes of her family, and is one of the figures that stand out most clearly in the early settlement of Iceland. We have only to turn to the Icelandic sagas to see before us a whole gallery of portraits, dark and fair alike, of woman cast in heroic mould, while the stone of Dirna in Hadland, bearing the runic inscription, Gunvor, daughter of Thirek, built their bridge to commemorate her daughter Astrid, she was the most gracious maiden in Hadeland, gives us one of the most attractive pictures of womanhood left to us from the Viking Age. It must be added, however, that beside the runic inscription, the stone bears carvings of the Christ child, the star in the east and the three kings, and this may serve to remind us that the age was one in which the peoples of the north passed from heathenism to Christianity, though the passage was a slow one and by no means complete even at the close of the period. It is probable that the first real knowledge of the white Christ came, as is so often the case, with the extension of trade, Phrygians trading with Scandinavia and Danes and Swedes settling in Phrygia and elsewhere for the same purpose. St. Willibrord, at the beginning of the 8th century, and Archbishop Ebbo of Reims in 823, as papal legate among the northern peoples, undertook missions to Denmark, but it was in 826, when King Harold was baptized at Mainz, that the first real opportunity came for the preaching of Christianity in Denmark. Harold was accompanied on his return by St. Ansgar, a monk from Corvey and a man filled with religious zeal. After two years' mission in Denmark, St. Ansgar sailed to Sweden, where he was graciously received at Björko by the king Björten. He made many converts, and on his return home in 831, was made Archbishop of Hamburg and given, jointly with Ebbo, jurisdiction over the whole of the northern realms. Hamburg was devastated in 845, 
and St. Anscar was then appointed to the bishopric of Bremen, afterwards united to a restored archbishopric of Hamburg. He laboured in Denmark once more, and established churches at Schleswig and Reeb. He conducted a second mission to Sweden, and his missionary zeal remained unabated until his death in 865. His work was carried on by his successor and biographer, St. Rimbert, and by many others. Their preaching was, however, confined to Jutland and South Sweden, and there is no evidence of any popular movement towards Christianity. Gorm the Old was a steadfast pagan, but Gorm's son, Harold Bluetooth, was a zealous promoter of Christianity. His enthusiasm may have been exaggerated by monastic chroniclers in contrast to the heathenism of his son, Svein, but with the accession of Knut, all fears of a reversion to heathendom were at an end. Knut was a devout son of the church. The first Danish settlers in England were entirely heathen in sentiment, but they were soon brought into close contact with Christianity, and the terms of the peace of Edward and Guthrum in the early years of the 10th century show that already Christianity was making its way in the Danelog. In the course of this century, both archbishoprics were held by men of Danish descent, and the excesses of the early 11th century were due not to the Danish settlers, but to the heathen followers of Olaf Tryggvason and Svein Forkbeard. Similarly, the Danish settlers in Normandy were within a few years numbered among the church's most enthusiastic supporters, and Rollo's own son and successor, William, was anxious to become a monk. The story of the preaching of Christianity in Norway is a checkered one. The first attempt to establish the Christian faith was made by Hakon, Athelstane's Fostri. Baptized and educated in England, he began warily, inducing those who were best beloved by him to become Christians, but he soon came into conflict with the more ardent followers of paganism. At the great autumn festival at Lade, when the cups of memory were drunk, Earl Sigurd signed a cup to Odin, but the king made the sign of the cross over his cup. Earl Sigurd pacified popular clamour by saying that the king had made the sign of the hammer and consecrated the cup to Thor. The next day, the king would not eat the horse flesh used in their offerings, nor drink the blood from it. The people were angry, and the king compromised by inhaling the steam from the offering through a linen cloth placed over the sacrificial kettle. But no one was satisfied, and at the next winter feast the king had to eat some bits of horse liver and to drink crossless all the cups of memory. Hakon died a Christian, but Ivander Skaldaspitler in Hakonarmal describes how he was welcomed by Odin to Valhalla. Earl Hakon Sigurdsson, nicknamed Blotjarl, i.e. Sacrifice Earl, was a zealous heathen, but Olaf Tryggvason, after his succession in 995, promoted the cause of Christianity by every means in his power, and it was largely by this that he owed his ultimate overthrow. Then, after a brief interval, the crown passed to St. Olaf, greatest of all Christian champions in Norway, and during his reign that country became definitely Christian, though his rough and ready methods of conversion were hardly likely to secure anything but a purely formal and outward adhesion to the new faith. 
Sweden was the most reluctant of the three northern realms to accept Christianity, and the country remained almost entirely heathen until the close of the Viking period. The story of the Norse settlers in Ireland and Western Islands, in their relation to Christianity, was very much that of the Danes in England. Celtic Christianity had a firm hold on these countries, and from the earliest period of the settlement, many of the Vikings adopted the Christian faith. Among the settlers in Iceland who came from the west were many Christians, and Auther herself gave orders at her death that she should be buried on the seashore below the tide mark rather than lie in unhallowed ground. Most of the settlers undoubtedly remained heathen. In 996, a ring sacred to Thor was taken from a temple in Dublin, and in 1000, King Brian destroyed a grove sacred to the same god just north of the city. But side by side with incidents of this kind must be placed others like that of the sparing of the churches, hospitals, and almshouses when Armagh was sacked in 921, or the retirement of Anlaf Curran to the monastery at Iona in 981. In Ireland, as elsewhere, there seems to have been a recrudescence of heathenism in the early years of the 11th century, and the great fight at Clontarf was regarded as a struggle between pagan and Christian. Outwardly, the Scandinavian world had largely declared its adhesion to Christianity by the close of the Viking period, but we must remember that the medieval church was satisfied if her converts passed through the ceremony of baptism and observed her rites, though their sentiments often remained heathen. Except in purely formal fashion, it is impossible to draw a definite line of demarcation between Christian and heathen, and the acceptance of Christianity is of importance not so much from any change of outlook which it produced in individuals, as because it brought the peoples of the north into closer touch with the general life and culture of medieval Europe. Leaders freely accepted baptism, often more than once, and even confirmation as part of a diplomatic bargain, while their profession of Christianity made no difference to their Viking way of life. Even on formal lines, the church had to admit of compromise, as for example in the practice of prime signing, whereby when Vikings visited Christian lands as traders or entered the service of Christian kings for payment, they often allowed themselves to be signed with the cross, which secured their admission to intercourse with Christian communities, but left them free to hold the faith which pleased them best. Strange forms and mixtures of belief arose in the passage from one faith to the other. Helgi the Lean was a Christian, but called on Thor in the hour of need. The Christian saints, with their wonder-working powers, were readily adopted into the Norse pantheon, and Vikings by their prayers and offerings secured the help of St. Patrick in Ireland and of St. Germanus in France in times of defeat and pestilence. While we hear of a family of settlers in Iceland, who gave up all faith except a belief in the power of St. Columba. On sculptured stones in the west may be found pictures of Ragnarok, of Balder and of Loki together with the sign of the cross. Some of the heathen myths themselves show Christian influence. The Balder story with its echoes of the lamentations for the suffering Christ belongs to the last stage of Norse heathendom, while a heathen skald makes Christ 
sit by the fountain of fate as the mighty destroyer of the giants when the virtue had gone out of their old beliefs many fell a prey to the grossest superstition worshipping the rocks and groves and rivers once thought to be the dwelling place of the gods others renounced faith in christian and heathen gods alike and the nickname godless is by no means rare among the settlers in iceland of such it is often said that they believed in themselves or had no faith in aught except their own strength and power while in the saga of frithjof we hear how the hero paid little heed to the sanctity of the temple of balder and that the love of ingeborg meant more to him than the wrath of the gods for a parallel to such audacious scepticism as that of frithjof we must turn to southern lands and later times with Ocasans in paradise what have i to win therein i seek not to enter but only to have my nicolette my sweet lady that i love so well for some the way of escape came not by superstition or by scepticism but in mystic speculation in pure worship of the powers of nature thus we hear of the icelander thorkel manni whom all praised for the excellence of his way of life that in his last illness he was carried out into the sunshine so that he might commend himself into the hands of the god who made the sun or of the gothi askelt who even in the hour of famine deemed it was more fitting to honour the creator by caring for the aged and the children than to relieve distress by putting these helpless ones to death one other illustration of the declining force of heathenism must be mentioned it is to the viking age that we owe the poems of the older edda that storehouse of norse mythology and cosmogony they are almost purely heathen in sentiment and yet one feels that it could only be in an age when belief in the old gods was passing away that the authors of these poems could have struck those notes of detachment irony and even of burlesque which characterize so many of them the condition of faith and belief in the viking age was then chaotic but fortunately for purposes of clear statement there was to the norse mind at least no necessary connection between beliefs and morality between faith and conduct and the ideas on which they based their philosophy and practice of life are fairly distinct the central idea which dominate the norse view of life are an ever-present sense of the passingness of all things and a deep consciousness of the overruling power of fate all earthly things are transitory and the one thing which lasts is a good name wealth dies kinsmen die man himself must die but the fame which a man wins rightly for himself never dies one thing i know that never dies the judgment passed on every man that dies says the poet of havamal the great storehouse of the gnomic wisdom of the norsemen all things are unstable and transitory let no man therefore be arrogant or overconfident the wise man will never praise the day before it is evening prudence and foresight are ever necessary all things are determined by a fate which is irrevocable and cannot be avoided every man must die the death that is appointed for him and the man whose final day has not yet come 
may face unmoved the greatest danger this sense of an inevitable fate must lead to no weakening of character or weariness of life death must be faced with cheerful stoicism and our judgment of the worth of any man must depend on the way in which he awaits the decree of fate place no great trust in others whether friend or foe least of all place trust in woman womanes counsels been full oft a says chaucer in the nun's priest tale using an old scandinavian proverb be friendly to your friends and a foeman to your foes practice hospitality and hate lying and untruthfulness with their enemies the vikings had an evil reputation for cunning and deceit but when we study the incidents on which the charge was based as for example the story of the capture of luna or the oft-repeated trick of feigning flight only to lure the enemy away from safe ground one must confess that they show an enemy outwitted rather than deceived this aspect of viking character perhaps finds its best illustration in the figure of odin his common epithets are the wise the prudent the sagacious he is a god of witchcraft and knows all the secret powers of nature and stands in contrast to the simple-minded thor endowed with mighty strength but less polished and refined the development of the worship of odin in norway belongs specially to the latter iron age and it is worthy of note that his worship seems to have prevailed chiefly in military circles among princes and the retainers the vikings were guilty of two besetting sins immoderate love of wine and of woman of their relations to woman enough has been said already their drunken revelry is best illustrated by the story of the orgy which led to the death of st alphage in london in one thousand and twelve when after drinking their fill of the wine they had brought from abroad they pelted the bishop with bones from the feast and finally pierced his skull with the spike of the back of an axe of sin in the christian sense the vikings had no conception an irish chronicler tells us indeed that the danes have a certain piety and that they can refrain from flesh and from woman for a time but a truer description is probably that given by adam of bremen when he says that the danes can weep neither for their sins nor for their dead the chief occupations of the vikings were trade and war but we must beware of drawing a too rigid distinction between adventurers and peaceful stay-at-homes the vikings when they settled in england and elsewhere showed that their previous roving life did not hinder them in the least from settling down as peaceful traders farmers or peasant labourers while the figure of Othair or otar to give him his norse name who entered the service of king alfred may serve to remind us that many a landed gentleman was not above carrying on a good trade with the finns or undertaking voyages of exploration in the white sea trading in those days was a matter of great difficulty and many risks the line of division between merchant and viking was a very thin one and more than once we read how when merchants went on a trading expedition they arranged a truce until their business was concluded and then treated each other as enemies trade in scandinavia was carried on either in fixed centres or in periodical markets held in convenient places 
the chief trading centres were the twin towns of Slesvig Hedeby in Denmark, Skiringsar in southwest Norway, and Björko, Sigtuna, and the island of Gothland in Sweden, while an important market was held periodically at Bohuslaun on the Gotalv, at a place where the boundaries of the three northern kingdoms met. A characteristic incident which happened at this market illustrates the international character of the trade done there on a certain occasion a wealthy merchant named gillay bracket the name is celtic and a bracket surnamed the russian because of his many journeys to that country set up his booth in the market and received a visit from the icelander hoskolder who was anxious to buy a female slave gillay drew back a curtain dividing off the inner part of the tent and showed Hoskolder twelve female slaves. Hoskolder bought one, and she proved to be an Irish king's daughter, who had been made captive by Viking raiders. The chief exports were furs, horses, wool, and fish, while the imports consisted chiefly in articles of luxury, whether for clothing or ornament. There was an extensive trade with the Orient in all such luxuries, and the Vikings seem eagerly to have accumulated wealth of this kind. When Limerick was recaptured by the Irish in 968, they carried off from the Vikings their jewels and their best property, and their saddles beautiful and foreign, bracket, probably of Spanish workmanship, end of bracket, their gold and their silver, their beautifully woven cloth of all colours and all kinds, their satins and silken cloths, pleasing and variegated, both scarlet and green, and all sorts of cloth in like manner. They captured, too, their soft, youthful, bright, matchless girls, their blooming, silk-clad young women, and their active, large, and well-formed boys. Such captives, whether made by Irish from Norsemen or Norsemen from Irish, would certainly be sold as slaves, for one of the chief branches of trade in those days was the sale as slaves of those made prisoner in war. The expansion of Scandinavian trade took place side by side with, rather than as a result of, Viking activity in war. There is evidence of the presence of traders in the Low Countries early in the ninth century, and already in the days of St. Anskar we hear of a Swedish widow of Björko, who left money for her daughter to distribute among the poor of Durstedt, Jomsburg was established to protect and increase Scandinavian trade at Julen, and there were other similar trading centres on the southern and eastern shores of the Baltic. The Viking might busy himself either with trade or war, but whatever his occupation, living as he did in insular or peninsular lands, good ships and good seamanship were essential to his livelihood. Seamen now often abandoned that timid hugging of the coast, sailing only by daytime and in fair weather, which characterized the old Phoenician traders, and boldly sailed across the uncharted main with no help save that of the sun and stars by which to steer their course. It was this boldness of spirit alone which enabled them to reach the lonely pharaohs, the distant Shetlands and Orkneys, and the yet more remote Iceland. Irish monks and anchorites had shown similar fearlessness, but their bravery was often that of the fanatic and the mystic, rather than the enterprise of the seaman. Boldness of seamanship, 
led to boldness in exploration. From Iceland the Vikings sailed to Greenland, and by the year 1000 had discovered Vinland, the northeast part of North America. Ottar rounded the North Cape and sailed the White Sea in the ninth century, while Harald Hardrada in the 11th century made a voyage of polar exploration. Of their ships we know a good deal both from the sagas and from the remains of actual ships preserved to us. The custom of ship burial, i.e. burial in a ship over which a grave chamber, covered with a how or mound, was erected, was common in the Viking Age, and several such ships have been discovered. The two most famous are those of Gokstad and Oseberg, both found on the shores of Christiana Fjord. The Gokstad vessel is of oak, clinker-built, with seats for sixteen pairs of rowers, and is twenty-eight feet long and sixteen feet broad amidships. It dates from about nine hundred, and in form and workmanship is not surpassed by modern vessels of a similar kind. There is a mast for a single sail, and the rudder, as always in those days, is on the starboard side. The gunwale was decorated with a series of shields painted alternately black and gold. The appearance of the vessel when fully equipped can perhaps best be judged from the pictures of Viking ships to be seen in the Bayou Tapestry. There we may note the parti-coloured sail, with its variegated stripes, and the rich carvings of the stem and stern. These magnificent sails were a source of much pride to their possessors, and the story is told of Sigurd Jerusalem Ferrer that on his way home from Jerusalem to Constantinople he lay for half a month off Cape Malaya, waiting for a side wind, so that his sails might be set lengthwise along the ship, and so be better seen by those standing on shore as he sailed up to Constantinople. The stem often ended in a dragon's head, done over with gold, whilst the stern was frequently shaped like a dragon's tail, so that the vessel itself was often called a dragon. The Oseberg ship is of a different type. The gunwale is lower, and the whole vessel is flatter and broader. It is used as the grave chamber of a woman, and the whole appearance of the vessel, including its richly carved stem, indicates that it was used in calm waters for peaceful purposes. The story of the escape of Herek of Thjota through Copenhagen Sound after the Battle of Helgeau in 1018 illustrates the difference between a trading ship and a ship of war. Herek struck sail and mast, took down the vane, stretched a great tent cloth over the ship's sides, and left only a few rowers fore and aft. The rest of the crew were bidden lie flat so that they might not be seen with the result that the Danes mistook Herrick's war-galley for a trading vessel laden with herrings or salt and let it pass unchallenged. In the last years of the Viking period, ships increased greatly both in size and number. Olaf Tryggvason's vessel, the Long Serpent, in which he fought his last fight as Folder, had thirty benches of oars, while Canute the Great had one with sixty pairs of oars. This same king went with a fleet of some 1,400 vessels to the conquest of Norway. In battle, the weapons of defence were helmet, corslet and shield. The shields were of wood with a heavy iron boss in the centre. The corselets were made of iron rings, leather or thick cloth. 
the weapons of offence were mainly sword spear and battle axe the sword was of the two-edged type and usually had a shallow depression along the middle of the blade known as the blood channel above the blade terminated in a narrow tang bounded at either end by the hilts round the tang and between the hilts was the handle of wood horn or some similar material often covered with leather or occasionally with metal above the upper hilt was a knob which gave the sword the necessary balance for a good steady blow generally the knob and the hilts were inlaid with silver bronze or copper work the battle axe the most characteristic of viking weapons was of the heavy broad-bladed type next to warfare and trade the chief occupation of the viking was farming while his chief amusement was the chase at home the viking leader lived the life of an active country gentleman his favourite sport was hawking and one of the legendary lives of st edmund tells how ragnar lothbrok himself was driven by stress of storm to land on the east anglian coast receiving a hospitable welcome from the king but ultimately meeting death at the hands of the king's huntsman who was jealous of his prowess as a fowler of the social organization of the vikings it is impossible to form a very definite or precise picture we have in the laws of the jomsborg settlement the rule of life of a warrior community but it would be a mistake to imagine that these laws prevailed in all settlements alike the general structure of their society was aristocratic rather than democratic but within the aristocracy which was primarily a military one the principle of equality prevailed when asked who was their lord rollo's men answered we have no lord we are all equals but while they admitted no lord the vikings were essentially practical they realized the importance of organized leadership and we have a succession of able leaders mentioned in the annals of the time to some of whom the title king was given these kings however are too numerous and too many of them are mentioned together for it to be possible to give the term king in this connection anything like its usual connotation it would seem rather to have been used for any prince of the royal house and it was only when the vikings had formed fixed settlements and come definitely under western influence that we hear of kings in the ordinary territorial sense kings of northumbria dublin man and the isles or east anglia we hear also of jarls or earls either as viking leaders or as definite territorial rulers as for example the orkney earls and more than one earl who is mentioned as ruling in dublin but these earls usually held their land under the authority of a king by the side of kings and earls mention is made both in the danelagh and also in the western islands of law men it is difficult exactly to define their position and function originally these men were simply experts in the law who expounded it in the popular thing or assembly and were the spokesmen of the people as against the king and the court but sometimes they assumed judicial functions acting for example in sweden as assessors to the king who was supreme judge in their home life we find the same strange mixture of civilization and barbarism which marks them elsewhere 
Their houses were built of timber, covered with clay. There was no proper hearth, and the smoke from the fire made its way out as best it could through the turf-covered roof. The chief furniture of the room consisted in beds, benches, long tables, and chests, and in the houses of the rich, these would at the close of the period often be carved with stories from the old heroic or mythologic legends. While the walls might be covered with tapestry, prominent in the chieftain's hall stood the carved pillars which supported his high seat and were considered sacred. When some of the settlers first sailed to Iceland, they threw overboard their high seat pillars, which they had brought with them, and chose as the site of their new abode the place where these pillars were cast ashore. In clothing and adornment there can be no question that our Viking forefathers had attained a high standard of luxury. Any visitor to the great national museums at Copenhagen, Stockholm, or Christiania must be impressed by the wealth of personal ornaments displayed before him, magnificent brooches of silver and bronze, arm rings and neck rings of gold and silver, large beads of silver, glass, rock crystal, amber, and cornelian. At one time it was commonly assumed that these ornaments, often displaying the highest artistic skill, were simply plunder taken by the Vikings from nations more cultured and artistic than themselves. But patient investigation has shown that the majority of them were wrought in Scandinavia itself. The most characteristic of Viking ornaments is undoubtedly the brooch. It was usually oval in shape and the concave surface was covered with a framework of knobs and connecting bands, which divided it into a series of fields, bracket to use the heraldic term, end of bracket, which could themselves be decorated with the characteristic ornamentation of the period. The commonest form of oval brooch was that with nine knobs on a single plate, but in the later examples the plate is often doubled. The brooches themselves were of bronze, the knobs usually of silver with silver wire along the edge of the brooch. These knobs have now often disappeared and the bronze has become dull with verdigris, so that it is difficult to form an idea of their original magnificence. The oval brooches were used to fasten the outer mantle and were usually worn in pairs either on the breast or on the shoulders, and examples of them have been found from Russia in the east to Ireland on the west. Other types of brooch are also found, straight-armed, trilobed, and round. Such brooches were often worn in the middle of the bosom, a little below the oval ones. Other ornaments besides brooches are common, arm rings, neck rings, pendants. One of the most interesting of the pendants is a ring with a series of small silver Thor's hammers which was probably used as a charm against ill luck. All these ornaments alike are in silver rather than gold, and it has been said that if the post-Roman period of Scandinavian archaeology be called the Age of Gold, the Viking period should be named the Age of Silver. The style of ornamentation used in these articles of personal adornment, as well as in objects of more general use, such as horse trappings, is that commonly known to German archaeologists as tier ornamentique, i.e. animal or zoomorphic ornamentation. 
This last translation may sound pedantic, but it is the most accurate description of the style, for we have no attempt to represent the full form of any animal that ever had actual existence. Rather, we find the various limbs of animals, heads, legs, tails, woven into one another in fantastic design, in order to cover a certain surface area which requires decoration. The animals are ornaments and treated as such. They are stretched and curved, lengthened and shortened, refashioned and remodeled, just as the space which they must fill requires. This style was once called the dragon style, but the term is misleading, as there is no example belonging to the Viking period proper of any attempt to represent a dragon, i.e. some fantastic animal with wings. Such creatures belong to a later period. The zoomorphic style did not have its origin during the Viking period. It is based on that of a preceding period in the culture of North German peoples, but it received certain characteristic developments at this time, more especially under the influence of Irish and Frankish art. Irish art had begun to influence that of Scandinavia even before the Viking period began, and the development of intercourse between North and West greatly strengthened that influence. To Frankish influence were due not only certain developments of tier ornamentic, but also the use of figures from the plant world for decorative purposes. One of the finest brooches preserved to us from this period is a Frankish workmanship, a magnificent trilobed brooch of gold with the canthus leaf ornamentation. This leaf work was often imitated by Scandinavian craftsmen, but the imitation is usually rude and unconvincing. Traces are also to be found of Oriental, and more especially of Arabic influence, in certain forms of silver ornamentation. But finds of articles of actual Eastern manufacture are more common than finds of articles of Scandinavian origin showing Eastern influences in their workmanship. Buried treasure from the Viking period is very common. It was a popular belief sanctioned by the express statement of Odin that a man would enjoy in Valhalla whatsoever he had himself buried in the earth. Another common motive in the burial of treasure was doubtless the desire to find a place of security against robbery and plunder. Treasure thus secreted would often be lost sight of at the owner's death. To the burial customs of the Viking period also we owe much of our knowledge of their weapons, clothing, ornaments, and even of their domestic utensils. The dead were as a rule cremated, at least during the early part of the Viking period. The body burned or unburned was either buried in a mound of earth forming a how, or was laid under the surface of the ground, and the grave marked by stones arranged in a circle, square, triangle, or oval, sometimes even imitating the outlines of a ship. The hows were often of huge size. The largest of the three king's hows at Old Uppsala is 30 feet high and 200 feet broad. A large how was very necessary in the well-known ship burial when the dead man, bracket or woman, end of bracket, was placed in a grave chamber on board his ship and the ship was drawn on land and buried within a how. Men and women alike were buried in full dress and the men usually have all their weapons with them. In the latter case, weapons tend to take the place of articles of domestic use, 
such as are found in the graves of an earlier period, and the change points to a new conception of the future life. It is now a life in which warriors feast with Odin in Valhalla, on benches that are covered with corselets. A careful examination of Norwegian graves has proved fairly definitely the existence of the custom of Sati during the Viking period, and the evidence of the Arab historian Ibn Fadlan seems to show that the same custom prevailed among the Rus. Horses, dogs, hawks, and other animals were often buried with their masters, and the remains of such, burned or unburned, have frequently been found. The varying customs attending burial are happily illustrated in the two accounts preserved to us of the burial of King Harold Hildetan, who died circa 750. The accounts were written down long after the actual event, but they probably give us a good picture of familiar incidents in burial ceremonies of the Viking period. One account, bracket in a late saga, end of bracket, tells how, on the morrow of the great fight at Bravala, King Ring caused search to be made for the body of his kinsman, Harold. When the body was found, it was washed and placed in the chariot which Harold used in the fight. A large mound was raised, and the chariot was drawn into the mound by Harold's own horse. The horse was now killed, and Ring gave his own saddle to Harold, telling him that he might ride or drive to Valhalla, just as it pleased him best. A great memorial feast was held, and Ring bade his warriors and nobles throw into the mound large rings of gold and silver, and good weapons before it was finally closed. The other account, bracket, in Saxo, end of bracket, tells how Ring harnessed his own horse to Harold's chariot, and bade him drive quickly to Valhalla, as the best in battle, and when he came to Odin, to prepare goodly quarters for friend and foe alike. The pyre was then kindled, and by Ring's command the Danes placed Harold's ship upon it. When the fire destroyed the body, the king commanded his followers to walk around the pyre and chant a lament, making rich offerings of weapons, gold, and treasure, so that the fire might mount the higher in honour of the great king. So the body was burned, the ashes were collected, laid in an urn and sent to Lair, there to be buried with the horse and the weapons in royal fashion. There are many curious coincidences of detail between these accounts and that given by Ibn Farlan of the burial of a Rus warrior, and every detail of them has at one time or another been confirmed by archaeological evidence. The dead were commemorated by the how itself, but Bautausteinar, i.e. memorial stones, were also erected, either on the how or, more commonly, elsewhere. In course of time, these monuments came to be inscribed with runes. Usually, the inscription is of the most formal type, giving the name of the dead person, the name of the man who raised the memorial, and sometimes also that of the man who carved the runes. Occasionally there is some more human touch as in the wording of the Dirna runes, and in the latter part of the Viking period we often find pictures and even scenes inscribed on the stones. This is true of the Dirna stone. The Yelling stone has a figure of Christ on it, while there is a famous rock inscription in Sweden 
representing scenes from the Sigurd story, bracket Regan Smithy, Hammer, Tongs, and Bellows, Sigurd piercing Fafner with his sword, the birds whose speech Sigurd understood, end of bracket, encircled by a serpent, bracket Fafner, end of bracket, bearing a long runic inscription. The runic alphabet itself was the invention of an earlier age. It is based chiefly on the old Roman alphabet, with such modifications of form and symbol as were necessitated by the different sounds in the Teutonic tongues, and by the use of such unyielding materials as wood and stone. Straight lines were preferred to curved ones, and sloping to horizontal. During the Viking period, it was simplified, and runic inscriptions are found from the valley of the Dnieper on the east to man in the west, and from Iceland on the north to the Piraeus in the south. End of chapter 8